the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello again, and welcome along to Enter Sad Men. Good to have your company. Uh, my name's Steve, and with me, as ever, are my chums and my co-hosts, Mark and Richard. We're still remotely, but I can see them virtually beaming away at me from their living rooms. The two of them, like me, brace to embark on the next leg of our adventure, which is to conjure up the ultimate hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame, the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame, a league table of vinyl wonder from what we perceive to be rock's golden age. If you've been with us before, you'll know the drill. We pick three albums, we review them, we score them track by track, do the maths and insert them into their rightful place in the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame, the only Hall of Fame that matters. Um, and if you want to know more about it, check out the website, entersadmen.co.uk. There's loads of links on there to our social media platforms and you can listen to the podcast on there. Get involved. Tell us what you think. Uh, rules, well, there aren't many. We don't do compilations and we don't do greatest hits. And we've come up with 1970 to 1995 is our, is our golden age because it's a nice, neat round number. Me, I'm very much a child of the 80s. So this episode, episode 26, is right in my wheelhouse because we have picked three albums from the 1980s. In fact, someone else has picked those albums for us. Mark, you might want to explain what the uh, premise is for episode 26. So, yes, our daughters have picked the albums from this evening. And that all started when my daughter said to me, um, actually, all of the albums you're picking are rubbish. I could pick a better album for you to review. So I said, OK, you should go ahead and do that. So she has. She has. She's done that. And we decided that, to quote Iron Maiden, bring our daughters to the slaughter. And uh, each of our daughters have chosen an album. And my daughter, Holly, has chosen Kiss's 1987 album, Crazy Nights. Richard? And my daughter, Alice, has chosen another album from 1987, and that is Def Leppard's Hysteria. Yeah, very good. So my daughter, Sean, has chosen Van Halen's final album called 1984. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the first one we'll listen to. So I reckon, what do you say we listen to a few bits from each of those three, and then we'll talk about them, review them, score them, and rank them in our Hall of Fame. <laughs>
Uh, so there you go. Two glorious minutes of 1980s hard rock. It's MTV friendly, all of it, even though MTV didn't really exist when 1984 came out. But that's what we're starting with. Steve is the resident Van Halen nuts. You're working your way through their back catalogue at a rate of knots with the help of Sean, aren't you? So tell us about 1984. I'm not sure why Sean chose it. I, I can tell you that the reason that Holly chose 19, um, chose Crazy Nights is no more sophisticated than she likes it. What about Sean? I texted her, told her the premise of what we were doing. My, my, my daughter, Sean, she's in her early 20s. I texted her and said, this is the premise. Tico Torres, our tombola, has come up with Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter. And you, kidder, have got to um, come up with an album for the show. She is fastest finger, first generation. She te- I, I knew she wasn't working. She texted back straight away, and she didn't. So I was even waiting for a rolling eyes emoji or just, you know, for fuck's sake, Dad, grow up or something. But none of that. So I rang her back about 15 minutes later and just said, you did get the message. She said, yeah, I don't know any of your music. So I said, anyway, cut a long story short. I said, come on, I don't ask much. I just want an album that you remember that one of mine that we will have played together. And she said, what about those songs we used to sing in the car on the way back from school? And I said, what songs were those? And she said, well, the one about Top Jimmy Rocks. Oh, I remember, yeah, that's good. And she said, um, what was the other one, Jump? I said, yeah, yeah. She said, well, pick one of those albums. And I said, I can do better than that. And so that's how we got to where we are. So, yeah, this is this is about the only album she ever knows from my collection. She liked those tracks. And uh, here we are doing 1984, which is just a, it's, it's just a pleasure for me. Van Halen's sixth studio album, the last one with DLR, although he did come back, of course, to do A Different Kind of Truth. But make no mistake, 1984 was the end of Van Halen's golden age. This album, 1984, is to some extent a, a valedictory because I wouldn't know at the time. I was 19 years old at the time. There was no internet. I didn't know about feuding between bands because it wasn't the Daily Express. So I didn't know Van Halen were on their last legs. And here we have this great album released on the 9th of January, 1984. It had been recorded at the back end of 83 on Warner Brothers, produced by Ted Templeman and recorded at the 5150 Studios in Los Angeles. The personnel, it's the quartet, the golden quartet of Mr. Diamond, David Lee Roth on vocals, very tragically late Eddie Van Halen on guitar, Michael Anthony on bass and Alex Van Halen on drums. It's obviously charted well and sold well, reached number two in the States where it went platinum about a dozen times, gold over here where it reached number 15. As ever with a Van Halen album, certainly from that era, it's not long. It's about 33, 34 minutes long, nine tracks on it. They did six albums with David Lee Roth, and I think the longest one was 35. That's the length of an album. You get in there, get out quick, leave them wanting more next time around. None of these 62 minutes bollocks that we might yet get at some point in episode 26. So, yeah, so there you go. That's Van Halen. I, I could talk all night about 1984, and indeed we will. I'm guessing you boys love it as much as I do. I do love it a lot. Is it my favourite Van Halen album? We'll have to see with the scores. I think it is, and it's been lovely going back to it. Yeah, echo all of that. I think it's my favourite Van Halen album too. But like Richard's, these these podcast evenings have a habit of turning what you think on its head. This is certainly my favourite Van Halen album of the David Lee Roth era, I think. But who knows? We haven't done three of them yet. Um, So, yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. And I haven't played it front to back probably in 10 or 12 years, and it was bloody wonderful. Yeah. I'd always denied it was my favourite Van Halen album. 
because I'd always said that women and children first is, and the scores might, they might suggest otherwise, but I still, I still say that women and children first is my favorite Van Halen album because of the album, because of what it means and what it represents and everything else. And that's fine. If it's outscored by this, so be it. I'll still say women and children first is my favorite album. Track one on 1984 is the, the prelude, the intro, the overture, call it what you like. It's the title track, 1984, which is indicative of what the problem was with the band at the time in as much as it's a piece of keyboard work and therein lies the de- default lines that had manifested themselves with Van Halen over the previous couple of years. Basically, the band was split down the middle. Ted Templeman, the producer, and David Lee Roth wanted to go poppy and frothy and carry on what they were doing. Eddie Van Halen and Don Lande, the band's engineer for all the previous albums, went off in a different direction, used Eddie Van Halen's studio, 5150, and just started taking creative control of the band on a grand, grand scale. And therefore, we've got this massively keyboard-driven album, which is brilliant in many, many ways, none more so than what 1984 goes into, which is quite simply the most perfect synth rock pop song there's ever been. And I'm I'm getting a tear in my eye just listening to the start of it, as I always do. And more tearful now, actually, than I've ever been before, because, of course, we lost Eddie Van Halen this year, and he's working his magic on on the keyboards that... I just think are a brilliant inclusion to Van Halen, especially the way they knitted it throughout this album. They did the keyboards, they did the rock. It's the perfect cocktail of the first six, seven or eight years of Van Halen in this album. Both sides, all parties together, doing what Van Halen do so superbly well. Jump is just a priceless track, Mark. I don't think there has ever been a more iconic opening to a track ever. Yeah, You, you just need to, you don't even need to listen to the whole keyboard run. You just need a part of the first notes and you know exactly what this song is. And yeah, it's a soundtrack to life, isn't it? It's just, you. I grew up with this song. It just takes me to places that I like visiting. Yeah, that's the point. It takes you to the happy places, doesn't it? Richard? What can I say? This is just yeah, such fun, isn't it? I mean, Eddie obviously discovered synthesizers, didn't he? Uh, but he didn't have to discover how to play them. He just unbelievable pianist before he became a guitarist. You know, reciting Bach and Mozart you know, without a, he couldn't read music, but he just learned how to play the notes. And of course, he had used keyboards before on on previous albums, just not very much. It's not it's not as if this was a complete departure from the norm. I mean, it hadn't been much or, or very much of it. But I mean, sort of dancing in the street, for example, off Diver Down, um, Sunday afternoon in the park, or Fair Warning. But this this took it to a level where. You're thinking, are you sure that's Eddie Van Halen playing that? Have they not got a, a, a pianist in? Anyway, then from from Jump, well, we really crank it up a gear into um, into the album's first real rocker, which is Panama. And as I said, there's this lovely blend throughout the album of old and new, if you like, of Van Halen. And this is proper old school. This is another absolute favourite of mine. Just so many things to enjoy about this track. None more than the riff. Well, the tune itself, for Christ's sake. I mean, the, the chorus, all the little things that go into making it. But... All in all, it's just it's just proper bit of Van Halen rock. This song takes me back to BBC Radio Training in Grafton Street in London in 1992, where we'd been through a week of training, learning how to edit, learning how to present, learning how to drive BBC mixing desks and what have you, all of the things that you need to be a top broadcaster with the BBC. And at the end of it, we were told to put together a half-hour show using reports and features that other people on the training course have put together and um, we were allowed to choose three records 
to play. And unlike BBC normally, we were given a free choice. We didn't have to pick them from a set list. And this was one of them. So this always takes me back to radio training. It's just a great song. You'd bounce along to this quite happily for the rest of your life, wouldn't you? Yeah, you absolutely would. Third single from the album. Rich, it's right in your wheelhouse, isn't it? That's brilliant. Is there a better track two on an album? It's just absolute Van Halen classic. It could have appeared on any of their previous albums. It's just just absolute classic. The writing, though, the the structure of the song is really mature. The quiet piece in the middle where it just drops a bit. Um, Dave starts, Dave Leroy starts one of his usual little breathy stories and, and then the whole thing builds again. It's uh, absolutely brilliant. I also love, I don't know whether that's keyboard or guitar, but that revving car. It's a car. Is it a car? It's uh, Edward Van Halen's car. Okay. Not just any old car, it's uh, his Lamborghini. Brought his, his Lamborghini into the studio and they set some mics up around the exhaust pipe and he revved it. <laughs> <laughs> From Panama, we go into the school run sing along, Top Jimmy, which, yeah, I can, this just in, inevitably just takes me back <laughs> to sitting in the car and the kids singing along. It's just a great song to sing along to. Not the first song on this album where the uh, the solo is in a different key to the song itself, but Eddie Van Allen always said that the solo should be a song within a song, which helps to explain why the, uh, the bridges into them can seem a little bit disjointed. And that doesn't take anything away from this track. I love it. Just fun. So I don't know where the divisions lie in a song like Top Jimmy, whether this would have been in the kind of direction that Eddie and co wanted to take it or whether it's still ploughing the furrow that Dave Lee Roth wants to take. But you could hear this on one of his solo albums. It's got that kind of vibe to it. I could hear this on Skyscraper easily. It's different, isn't it? It's just slightly off the centre line. Well, they were never afraid to go off the centre line, were they, to be honest? That's what made them quite so innovative, I always thought. There are so many classic starts to songs on this album. I said earlier about the um, the first couple of chords of Jump and you know what it is. The, the, the starts of every song on this album are so different. Yeah, this one with the, the, all the harmonics. I mean, you just, you just know what it is. It was all about this guy, wasn't it? This um, James Paul Konchek, is it? Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs. Jimmy Konek worked at the top taco stand outside A&M Records in Hollywood. During the day, that was his day job. And he fronted Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs at night. Roth got to know him and he got Connor to join him on stage a few times to jam. And it's as simple as that. It was just this kind of a little friendship that they kicked up at a club. And so Top Jimmy, we finish. And so Top Jimmy makes way to Drop Dead Legs, which Eddie Van Halen called a jazz version of Back in Black. He said it was inspired by the Back in Black riff, didn't he? Again, the start. That, that, the riff. I mean, he talks about this brown sound, doesn't he, that's not too overdriven, but just that that fantastic balance that's got a, a huge amount of body to it, and this just typifies it. Um, and then you've got David Roth's vocals over the top, you know, dig that steam giant butt. It was by Marilyn Monroe when she was walking down the side of that train in Some Like It Hot. And Dave Lee Roth wanted to be her violin case. <laughs> like, like every other man on the planet. <laughs> I love this song. Yet, just to give you an idea of where I'm at with this album, this on a list of nine, well, let's ignore 1984, on a list of eight, this is at number seven, and I've scored it really highly. 
But I hear where you're coming from. I absolutely get that. And the whole point about Top Jimmy and Drop Dead Legs is that was sort of considered something of an afterthought, having come after Jump and Panama, you know? And the other thing about this track, of course, is we get plenty of different Van Halen guitar solos in this album, indeed, over the course of his career. This one's just brilliant. He says he was just pretty much jamming. He said it was inspired by his fusion guitar hero, a bloke called Alan Holdsworth. And he said, just playing whatever I wanted to do. Bunch of wrong notes here and there, but it seemed to work. That's what he said. But it does work. If you want something that defines the sound of Van Halen, surely this is it, isn't it? You know, they, they, he disappears down little avenues and alleyways and pops up again somewhere else with something else. It's brilliant. That's what makes Van Halen Van Halen. And so, side two, the drum roll kicking off. Hot for Teacher, um, Alex Van Halen's double bass drum solo. And then, like Panama, takes you into the most monstrous riff. It's, and this is a song that, like Panama, just takes me back to Hastings, Mark, when we were uh, studying together. It, it's just such an evocative song. Funnily enough, it, it takes me back there, but it also takes me to Donington. And you can actually, the video of them playing this live at Donington 84, is, it's all you can find on YouTube. But it takes me back, because I, I don't know whether, I don't think it was this song, it might have been, but there was a song where, you know, it's like at Donington, everyone's throwing shit at the stage. And Van Halen were up there, and Van Halen blew ACDC away that day. Speaking as an ACDC band, they just absolutely caned it. Steve <laughs> Roth, they were, Bottles were coming over, and Daily Rock stopped at one point, looked at this bloke and went, if you keep throwing that shit up here, I'm going to come down there and fuck your girlfriend. <laughs> Just, what the, that's the greatest threat ever. <laughs> yeah, the drums at the start of this are not overdubbed, and it's not just his... Not just the bass drum, but all the stuff he's they're all the, the, the he starts on the floor tom. I'm going to bore people with drumming for a bit, but it, it is the most complicated piece of drumming, uh, with shuffles and triplets and all different kinds of you know uh, techniques. Absolutely brilliant. Look up a video uh, on YouTube. Just absolutely brilliant. I'll tell you something though. The drums are what you really notice in this album. Well, you'll you'll notice them in every album because you play the drums. I tend to ignore them because I don't understand people who play the drums. I don't understand how, how their hands and feet move in those ways because I can't do it. But I really noticed the drums on this album because they are right up in the mix. Well, it's also with three musicians, and we, we talk about this when we talk about Rush. Well, obviously I do a lot. But when there are only three of you, you actually, well, there's a lot of space to fill, but it actually gives you the space to do what you need to do. And because they're not overdubbing, it is just three instruments. It's just the you know, drums, guitar, bass, or drums, synth, bass. That's it. And it gives them all space to, to do what they want to do. And, and the reason you're noticing the drums more is because you can hear them and they're being played as an instrument, not just keeping the beat. We should talk a bit about the video directed by Dave Lee Roth, but also with the guy called Pete Angelis, who you know, the, the fabulous Picasso brothers. Uh, who are also responsible for all the Dave Lee Roth videos like uh, California Girls and Gigolo. They hired a closed school uh, to do the video. And um, through the the money they paid an extra, they actually helped to reopen the school. Uh, they got a couple of top models, including an ex-Playboy uh, playmate, uh, to be the, uh, the teachers, which uh, I'll remember for the rest of my life. Funny bit about it is 
at one point during the video where the teacher's standing behind a chalkboard, there are some numbers written on it, which are 29, 18, 19, 25, 12, 15, and 8. If you convert those to the letters of the alphabet, spelt out on the board behind the teacher in the video is the phrase, holy shit. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) I never knew that. Uh, to me, that just sums up the track. It's just like a track they're just having a whole load of fun on. Everything about Hot for Teacher is just fun, fun, fun. And then from the cabaret, we go into I'll Wait, which if there's one song on this album that epitomises the state of where the band was more than any other, it's this one, because it's a track that Roth and Templeman didn't want on the album. It's a track that Roth couldn't even finish without the help of a former Doobie brother, Michael McDonald, and it's a track that Van Halen and Don Landay very definitely did want on the album for the reasons you'll know if you've heard it. I'll wait. It's, an, it's a really, really keyboardy led song. Mark, you made the point earlier in the week that this isn't the one track that's pointing towards the future because it would sit so comfortably on 5150. This is where Eddie Van Halen wanted to take the band. Well, I'm glad it did end up on the album because I just think it's, for me, I think it's the best song on the album. And that's not a comment about whether I think they were right to go in the direction they did or not. I just think it's a fabulous, beautiful song. I could listen to this for the rest of my life quite happily. It's incredibly restrained for them. Dave Lee Roth actually sounds almost a bit innocent singing this. I I didn't know he struggled with it because it doesn't sound like it. Yeah, apparently Roth couldn't see the end, couldn't see the way out of the song, couldn't just couldn't write the bits he needed to. Michael McDonald, he wasn't exactly a friend of the band or anything. They're just friends of friends, and he was around, and bang, he came and, and sorted it out. The one negative about this album is that it finishes the wrong way round. It should go House of Pain, Girl Gone Bad, in which case you would have the greatest ever finishing song on an album, but you don't. You have it penultimately. This is Girl Gone Bad, the album's absolute hidden gem as far as I'm concerned. Hard never played live, tucked away at the back end of side two. Everything about this song just smacks of genius. I just think it's a masterpiece, utter masterpiece. And the drumming again, Rich. Oh, the, the, the drumming on the whole album. He, he's at his absolute best on this. I don't, I don't think he's bettered how he drums on here. He's fantastic on everything else they do, but here he's, he's just on fire. Again, I could hear this on, in fact, did, I think, hear this song on Dave Lee Roth's On Eat and Smile. It, it could be on a solo album. Thinking this is probably where Roth wanted the band to stay. Well, that's a really interesting point, because I'm saying I could hear this on Fair Warning, which is Roth's favourite album. That's, it would sit so comfortably on that album. It's that kind of song. You know, it's a proper rock song. And also Michael Anthony, you know, that earth-rumbling bass work, he got discredited by Eddie Van Halen far too often. He, he belittled him. On more than one occasion, I think he was a really, really underrated and hugely talented and really valued member of this quartet, personally. You don't want to speak ill of the dead, do you? But uh, particularly not someone like Eddie Van Halen, but I've always felt that Michael Anthony was treated appallingly. And to his eternal credit and his integrity, he's never, as far as I know, he's never done anything other than talk kindly about the band and his time in it. The way he was dropped was just... Yeah, if if there's one blemish, then it's that, surely. The final track on the album is House of Pain, which is quite fitting, really, given that Van Halen was pretty much a house of pain at this point because their time was up, but heavy enough to keep hardcore Van Halen fans like me amused. It always felt to me that it was added on, this extra, almost like a bit of a 
bonus track. It felt a bit detached. So I know what you mean about the order. I, I didn't realise until I was reading up for this episode that it was a very old song. It was on one of the demos that they gave to Gene Simmons. It does sound very early Van Halen uh, and, and therefore not up with the, the, I guess, the maturity of the other songs on the album. Simmons was quite rude about it, apparently. So I don't want that. Got no interest in that at all and handed it back. So how long would it have been stuck in the vaults for with Van Halen? I don't know, that's the best part of eight or nine years, probably. That's really interesting because, as we will discover a bit later on, this is exactly the kind of song that Simmons has written time after time after time for Kiss. So there you have it, 1984, a classic cocktail of Van Halen styles. Rolling Stone at the time called it the album that brings all of Van Halen's talent into focus, and so say all of us. Highs and lows, boys. Mark? So my low is House of Pain. It's a very high-scoring low, is all I would say. Um, and I'll wait all day long. It's my high. Okay. Richard? House of Pain is my low, and oh, there are so many so close. I think it has to be hot for teacher. Well, I can complete the hat trick on House of Pain, and I've got a, I've got a pair of tens, and if I had to pick one, it would be Jump, because it just means a little bit more than everything else on this album for very many reasons. So there you go. Our Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter 1980s special um, has started superbly with um, Van Halen's final album. And so we can move on three years to 1987. And Richard, album number two of episode 26 is Def Leppard's Hysteria. Talk us through it, baby. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so this was chosen by Alice. It's nice to see with Alice's music tastes, various bits and pieces creeping in, including Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and Boston and Journey. But of course, they're not from any influence I've got, but it's from the fact that they're on various soundtracks to various Netflix shows that she's really, really into. But hey, if that's the way they get in there, then then fine. So yeah, so she chose she chose Hysteria, and another another massive, massive, massive album. It was released in August 1987. Uh, I think it holds the current record of albums we've reviewed for the length that it actually took to create it. They started recording it in early 1984, uh, but for various reasons, which we'll come back to, uh, didn't actually complete it until uh, the beginning of 1987. As Steve says, it's a bit of a long one. It's 12 tracks and 12 long tracks, so uh, it's got a, over 62 minutes in length. Um, it was produced by uh, John Lange, uh, which, uh, who we've talked a lot about before, recorded in a number of studios um, in, in Europe, in Dublin, but obviously contained the classic Def Leppard lineup of Joe Elliott, Steve Clark, Phil Collin, Rick Savage and Rick Allen. It went to number one on both sides of the Atlantic and spent over a hundred weeks on the charts in both the UK and uh, the US. And again, I like like 1984 sales, absolutely massive, double platinum and more in the UK, twelve times platinum and counting in the US. Uh, so it really was an absolutely massive album. It's been brilliant going back to it. I remember hearing Animal, and then as the day this album came out, I, I bought it. 
but I haven't played it again in end to end in absolutely years. Yeah, it's been been an inter- really enjoyable but interesting revisit. How did you both get on with it? Mark and I were chatting earlier and about just going back to you know the mid eighties when we'd waited such a long time, and, and I like any Death Leopard fan were just waiting for Pyromania two, basically because I love Pyromania one, and you know we saw them at Donington the year before this came out, and they'd pretty much done a Pyromania set with a couple of tracks from this on it. But anyway, we, we didn't get that at all. Obviously, we got this, which is a band reaching for MTV in an unapologetic, unashamed way. And Joe Elliott at the time said, and I read a quote, and he said that this was the completion of a journey that on through the night, high and dry and pyromania had basically been key staging posts, stepping stones on their way to this. This was the completion of the journey. And I, and I get that. I absolutely get that. I, I love the idea of bands doing different things and exploring different avenues and trying different things. But I was still slightly disappointed that I wasn't getting Pyromania Mark II, which is kind of where my head was. So I was thinking of the best way of summing this up. And the best I could do was I thought this was a triumph of innovation over music. Sounds insulting and it's not meant to be. Um, And the key word in that sentence is over. It's not triumph or innovation. It's music. It's over because this is over everything. This is overproduced, overdubbed, over long, overblown in in a colossal way, offsetting all that. There are a hell of a lot of good tunes on this, some really memorable tunes, and I still have so, so much affection for that Death Leopard sound, the twin guitars and the harmonies, and no matter how enhanced it's become. Um, And so to that end, it's been a a treat. Because it's so damn long, it's rarely an album I listen to -to end-to-end, and I'm glad I've done it this time. It's It's been a really good listen, very enjoyable listen reaffirmed my belief that this was a brilliant band, even if I wasn't getting the album I wanted. Mark, what, how have you found rediscovering it? First of all, Steve has forgotten an over, which is rated, because I think you're absolutely right, Steve. There, there are some absolutely cracking tunes on this album, but there's no middle ground here. It's either really, really good or really, really bad. And there's nothing in the middle. It's um, it's a really interesting. It's been a really interesting week. You say you wanted Pyromania too. I, I wanted High and Dry. Yeah, I thought um, you would. Yeah, and I was hoping that you know what we would get when they released this was something a bit harder and a bit grittier and a bit edgier than Pyromania had been. Much as I like Pyromania, I love Pyromania, um, but I wanted them to go back to where they got and. <laughs> Joe Elliott says that On Through the Night and High and Dry and Pyromania were staging posts on a, a journey. Joe Elliott and the rest of Def Leppard have been serial re- history revisionists for quite a long time. So um, I don't think this was ever part of a planned journey. I think this is just that you know, they saw quite understandably, I don't blame them for it, it's not a criticism, but they saw a bandwagon and they jumped on it. And this is where they got to. And fair play to them. I, I do wonder if part of the... Yeah, the length and the over bit was, you know, obviously they themselves worked so hard and so long at this, hadn't they? That leads to another over. It's overthought, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah very probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we do feel for them, obviously. I mean, they were beset by the, the problems, obviously, initially. Mutt Lange um, left because of exhaustion. They tried out various other producers, including Jim Steinman. Just as they were getting going again, poor Rick Allen had his accident in his car and uh, lost his arm and, and in hospital. I think it's wonderful that the band maintained that commitment to him and the support. And it says a hell of a lot uh, about them as a, a bunch of individuals. You know, whilst he was convalescing in hospital, 
Mutland just uh, allegedly gave him the idea that they, because of drum technology, there could be a way that he could continue playing. So he started practicing in his hospital bed. You know, eventually Rick started to get the idea about how he could play. Uh, Mutland returns, and uh, and then they they produced this album. I don't know. I don't know if there's another over, but I think with with the, the all of the trials and tribulations they had to get over as a band, I can see why they thought, okay, we are going to throw the kitchen sink at this one. Okay, so side one of Hysteria uh, starts with Women, then Rocket, Animal, Love Bites, Pour Some Sugar on Me, and Armageddon It. And Women starts with a very clear indication about the whole album uh, in terms of the layers, effects, echoes, the new drum sound that Rick Allen's got. For me, it was always and still is a slow start to this album. I agree. This sets the tone for the album, pace-wise. I mean, I really like Women. I probably like it because it's probably the, I was going to say heaviest song on the album. That's probably the wrong word. It, it's, it's deep and it's there's, there's something to it. I don't know. This is a kind of an agreeable update of Pyromania, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I don't mind this at all. Interesting you say that, because I've said this in my note that I've made. It feels like a continuation of Pyromania. Yeah. Actually, but with some of the nice bits of High and Dry in it, this, in a less overproduced overdriven way could have been sitting quite happily on high and dry this kind of announces they're back aren't they and we were we were pleased so pleased that we cheered so loudly at donington that the crowd noise was fed back through the amps and the pa system yeah it's a great song but i mean it's an album of two it is literally an album of two halves this is a really strong start and this and, and they sustain this for a little while but unfortunately not until the end of the side I read a really fascinating quote from Joe Elliott about Women the Song, which shows that the dilemma that the band was having to struggle with at the time about the direction that the album and they were going in. Don't forget, this was released as a single in the US, the first single in the US before the album came out, whereas it wasn't in this country, of course, because we had Animal. And Elliott gave the impression that this was the only option they had in the States. This was the only track they could have put out first in the States. And he, and he said this, and I quote, we never expected women to be a big hit. We put it out because it was the heaviest thing on the album and we wanted the hardcore fans to be the first to know we were back. Otherwise, you end up with a 95% female audience who aren't going to be there next year. And I find that really interesting because they want that female audience. Seriously, they want they want people buying singles. They want to be the big box office chart fodder. You said they wanted to join that bandwagon, but they don't want to lose their hardcore fans at the same time. Can you have your cake and eat it? And I don't think they have, because I think that I think this lost them a lot of fans. I would argue they they didn't want their fans because you know they've effectively you, you look at their set lists over the last however many years, effectively they've excised those fans from their from their live show. Yeah. They play nothing on through the night. They play nothing off high and dry. It's all pyromania onwards. So so when Joe Elliott, I don't know when he said that. Well, he'd have said it years ago. He'd have said it about then. It's pretty disingenuous, isn't it? It is really disingenuous because. Everything about this band from this point onwards is about erasing their history. And I, I really struggle with that. You know, I love Def Leppard, but I struggle with what I struggle with is the lack of honesty about it. How much of that was down to just how unbelievably successful this album was? And obviously they were they were shooting for the big time with this. There's no I way they would have predicted this was would have been so massive. But then be honest about that. You know, be honest that that's what you're aiming for. And, and, you know, have the courage of that commercial conviction to say, 
what we've done, we're very proud of. But you know, that's that's then. This is now. We're moving on. But they've never done that. You know, they've they've always maintained that they're this kind of you know quintessential new wave of British heavy metal rock band, and they're not. They're an American machine. Other than their nationality, everything about them is American and has been since 1983. Let's talk Adam and the Ants instead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so track two is Rocket. Rick Allen refers to the sort of African drum rhythms that inspired this song, but nothing at all to do with Kings of the Wild Frontier. <laughs> I think it's a really good song. It's got a really good groove. I, mean, I have to say the backing vocals get on my tits a bit. Well, the other thing that gets on my tits is the, all the, um, the sort of Star Wars-style audio bits that they chuck in the middle, which is so self-indulgent. You almost, they said they had an absolute blast doing it. Well, I, I dare say you did, boys, but don't forget your audience. It just leaves me cold. Don't forget your audience. Whoops, they already did. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Phil Collin called this weird and quirky, Rocket. I think that sums it up quite nicely. Yeah, it was a feature of this album, all the samples they used. Yeah, it's always niggled me, the various little bits and pieces. Yeah, the thing that I've that I've kind of noted here is I really like Rocket. I don't have a problem with Rocket at all. I think it's a really good song. Is it worth six minutes, 30, six, six minutes 36 seconds? Mm, don't think so. No, you can do it in 3.30. And also, talk about flogging a fucking dead horse. This was the seventh single off the album, released 17 months after the album came out. I mean, I'm, we're a bit weary by now. <laughs> The thing is, Steve, what you've missed in all of that is they're not flogging a dead horse, they're flogging a live one. Or milk yeah. your cash cow. And Rocket gives way to track three on side one, which was the opening single in the UK and one of the, the best-known track probably off the album, and that's Animal. And here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Agreed. Yeah. Bought this the day it came out, and I went out to my car because on that particular day, I was heading over to Chalfont St. Peter to see a certain S. Davis of that parish. And I remember playing, I don't think you'd heard it at that point, but I brought it with me and we played it in your in your house. But this was, I mean, this was, the album hadn't come out. It was the first single, it was the pre-release. And I just thought, oh my God, this is going to be an incredible, if this is indicative of that album, this is going to be amazing. Because yeah. this is... An absolutely brilliant track. This is what they should have replicated time and time. This is candy store pop meets kind of earthy rock. Just perfect blend. Took a hell of a lot of getting there, didn't it? They were faffing around with this song before the car crash, weren't they? Yeah, around three years to write. <laughs> well, they really liked Joe Elliott's singing, and I think they, they but they weren't sure of the rest of the track, so they re, almost, almost rebuilt the whole of the rest of the track around it, around the vocal. They ended up with something that's more infectious than COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's just classic Def Leppard, isn't it? Rick Allen's drums, the thumps, the, the, the really goes right through your chest. Fantastic. An animal makes way for love bites. Mark's got his head in, head in his hands. Do you know how much I, I like this track? Less than Silent Night. That's oh. how much. <laughs> this is the first taste on the album that we get of saccharin. There's a lot more saccharin to come, particularly in the next track. And there are two ballads on this album. One of them is good and one of them is shit. This is not the good one. I mean, apart from quite a nice guitar line from Steve Clark, 
which is its only redeeming feature. Oh, no, this is just, oh, this is awful. And and it comes after a track, and you just go, all of your joy and all of your hope and all of your trust is sucked like an enormous hoover from your body the moment it starts. Awful, awful, awful song. Steve, do you agree? Yeah, I, I refer the jury to the previous speaker. I've got, um, I have less to say about it because it's been said. File it under O for OK. It's wimpy. It's generic. It's wimpy. It's not. It's not good at all. Find me some bright spots. Yeah, I, I still like it. I mean, it was it was brought in by um, Matt Lange, wasn't it? Um, as an, almost a country song. Of the two ballads on the album, I prefer this one. Why don't I dislike it as much as you two? Um, I still I like the rhythm in it. I like the beat in it. I like the fact that it's a bit dark, so it's not your standard sort of lovey-dovey, that kind of saccharine ballad. No, I, I, I'm still really warm to this track. Track five, side one, is a song about strippers. Pour some sugar on me. I've just written, oh dear. <laughs> I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't much like it when it first when it when it came out. And so it's no it's no great surprise. That, I mean, I don't think it's bad. I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't stop. I wouldn't take the needle off the record. It's not that bad. But it, I always found it something of a betrayal. I think to to who and what Def Leppard were. So yeah, I've never much liked this. I'm getting a lot of Aerosmith run DMC that kind of attempt at something slightly rappier. But, it, it, I mean, it was massive, wasn't it? It took the album to new heights. Phil, uh, interesting quote, again, from Phil Cullen. He says, pour some sugar on me is like anything. If you're rehearsing it in the rehearsal room, it's really fucking boring. But as soon as you play it in front of an audience who are into it, it makes all the difference. Yeah, I suppose you can imagine if they're playing it live. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a big doom, doom, doom beat, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I this track's fine. A lot of this album to me is is fine. I, I'm not I'm not as sort of anti as I think you two are with some of the tracks. It's just not as spectacular as as, as its sales suggest. When I listened to this for, for over the last week, I tried to reset my head because it's it appears on every compilation. It's it was overplayed at the time. It's been overplayed since. So. It, it suffers a bit through familiarity and you get that kind of contempt that comes with that, don't you? But so I tried to reset my head and, you know, I understand why it was popular. I understand why it was a big hit for them. But like I say, I didn't like it at the time. So mm. this is not me going, oh, it's been overplayed. I hate it. It's, it's a song I wasn't much particularly fond of at the time that I'm still not particularly fond of. Mm. I think the argument there, Mark, would had it been a rock song that you'd, not liked originally and tried to revisit and try to understand a bit better, you'd have found it easier. I don't think you like the vibe. You don't like anything about the flow of this song at all. It's just not It's not on your rock radar. No, that's exactly it, I think, yeah. Um, and therefore you're going to struggle to revisit. And I certainly wouldn't mention it in the same breath as Armageddon, because I think that's, that's different gear in comparison. I really do. Mm. I think this song uh, is a really good example of the mixing. And um, one of the other... Uh, yeah, the big my big criticisms of this album is how low the guitars are in the mix. I mean, for a two guitar and a guitar based band, um, the guitars are way way down a lot of the time. And "Pour Some Sugar on Me" is just driven by the the bass and the drums with the vocals over the top. 
and and that that's not what classic Def Leppard's about. Okay, so Pour Some Sugar on Me is followed by Armageddon It. And again, for me, it's fine, um, but doesn't really do much more for me. I really like it, but I liked T-Rex. So I get the T-Rex influence. Um, if you go back to the start of this track, and you just, over that short intro, if you say the words Untergleben, Glauben, Globen, you'll get the you'll get the roots of this song, I think. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, that I would say is this is a bit of fun, isn't it? It's a bit of it's a bit of throwaway kind of popcorn. It's all right. I wouldn't lift the needle. I'm quite happy to listen to it, but it's not classic Def Leppard. A bit like Pour Some Sugar on Me is not classic Def Leppard. I like this track a lot. I do. I do. Th- I just think it's got a really nice groove to it, and I, and I forgive them the the T Rex sound because you've got to get your influences from somewhere. In the song, we we get to the. You know, these sort of long middle breaks. And I mean, yeah, if, if I have a criticism through the album is that every song is too long. I mean, they, they, they could have cut. And I think it would have been a much, much better album if these songs had been sort of three to four minutes long as opposed to five to six. I agree. I think part of the, the problem with the album is that this album is still going to score well, but part of its problem is it's much, much, much too long. So the running order on side two is... Gods of War, Don't Shoot Shotgun, Run Riot, Hysteria, Excitable, and Love and Affection. And it starts with Gods of War, which really does step up a gear, doesn't it? Yeah. Finally, we've got a proper rock song. I mean, it's the longest track on the album, which which is no mean feat in itself. It's got lots of effects and too many of them, but good, honest, proper, hard rock song. Thank God. All the effects are front and back. I mean, it's almost like a prelude to the track, isn't it? It takes 50 seconds before it comes in. And the, and the opening is is a really good prolonged opening into a great riff and, and um, brilliant harmonies. This is Def Leppard harmonies in this, this and Run Right in particular. This is where they excel. I think this is a fabulous rock song. Fabulous rock song. Again, it doesn't need the shite at the end, the Ronald Reagan cobblers. doesn't need any of that. But it's a really, really brilliant song. It was almost orchestral in its build, isn't it? After that initial opening with the bass, when when the multiple guitars come in, it was really enjoyable hearing this song several times again because I haven't listened to this song in years. This is where this album, well, Animal kind of was as well, but this is where this this album becomes absolutely brilliant. Oh, just a, a really, really, really good song. And also, this is a Pyromania track. This is Die Hard the Hunter, isn't it? This is... That is exactly what it is, yeah. I didn't even clock that, but you're right. You're dead right. Hence why we like it so much. There's a classic Def Leppard chorus, isn't it, with the, the vo- all the layered voices. Yeah, I think for me, probably, one of the things about Gods of War over the other tracks is it flows. So there's, there's, you know, there's rises and falls in it, but it actually it flows as a song whereas a number of the other songs almost feel like they've been cut together. Do you know what I mean? With the with, with sort of the, some of the, the sampling and, the, and the, the backwards masking and various other bits and pieces, it feels like things have been inserted, whereas this song actually flows end to end. And that shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be feeling that about an album that's taken this long to craft together. It shouldn't be leaving the listener thinking, well, they plant that there and place that there and it doesn't quite segue that shouldn't yeah. be happening unless that's the effect they've looked for you know 
I think they were, weren't they? They, they, they really did want to experiment and, and, and create these these layers. But it's, it's, you say the um, the word over, I think they they had too much time. There's too much fiddling that's gone on on this. Track two on side two is Don't Shoot Shotgun. The start, a really good example of why do they have to do all that sampling? Can they just get on with it? And eventually it gets into a good riff and gets going. I could sit this on high and dry. It's, it seems almost quite back to roots. It's more simplistic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And less produced. There are songs on the second side where the guitars sound more like guitars. I don't know if you read, but they uh, links to previous episodes. They used Tom Schultz's Rockman pedal to achieve some of the guitar sounds, which even uh, those involved in you know, the engineering of the album said it was it, it, it's a shit sounding little box. <laughs> um, and it does. I mean, it's it, it, it massively compresses the guitar sound, and it, it's just it's just not what you want from Def Leppard. I read a really odd quote from Rick Savage who said they tried with this track to make it a bit more spontaneous and a bit loose. They wanted some swagger and attitude. I had to pinch myself. If there's one thing this album never was, it was spontaneous. I can say that they didn't have the same ambition for the rest of the album, just this track. Yeah. <laughs> but Don't Shoot Shotgun is, is simpler. It's got two guitars playing off each other, which is what you want, as opposed to seven stuck on top of each other and you can't, you don't know what's going on. And something that you don't get when you listen to this album on Spotify, which is a shame, is the segue between Don't Shoot Shotgun and track three of side two, Run Riot. Because when you listen to this on the vinyl, Run Riot explodes in just as Don't Shoot Shotgun is fading out, um, which is one of the best moments on the album. And Run Riot is an absolute right. This is where they pick up the tempo. This is where the guitars come to the fore. And it's a fantastic track. No arguments here. Finally, I've written. Finally. Phil Collins, Steve Clark bringing a bit of hard rock to the party. I still think it's eclipsed by the best of Pyromania and High and Dry and On Through the Night. But God knows I'm grateful for it on this album. Track four on side two is the title track of the album Hysteria. What a great track. Still love it. This is one for me where they have got the layers right because apparently there was something like 11 different guitar parts on Hysteria. Really? But it, it, it's just a brilliant, brilliant track. Yeah. It was Rick Savage yeah. who came up with the jangly guitar line, apparently. Played it to Joe Elliott, who didn't fancy it. He said it sounded too much like a police song. <laughs> and I have thought that through, and I can definitely hear kind of every breath you take in in this anyway the rest of the band were apparently hooked straight away Elliot saw sense and you know bingo you got this monster I presume they play it live all the time don't they it must be a staple I thought I don't know because they don't play any of the stuff I like anymore so I can't be bothered to go and see them <laughs> if Joe Elliot had some reservations to start with he obviously got over them didn't he because this is uh, his best vocal performance on the album yeah I think so along with Gods of War and it's because he's restrained he spends a lot of time on this album right at the top of his register. And, and it's when he dials it down and he's more restrained and more considered and more measured that the album grows and thrives and breathes. Hysteria is followed by the penultimate track, Excitable, which, which is a track that ever since I first played this album has me hyperventilating. <laughs> 
I've written down, are you execrable? <laughs> because this is utter, utter, utter nonsense. This is this is prefab sprout. It's it's just bollocks. Utter bollocks. <laughs> I, I think it's more rock set. So, Rich, what they were trying to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is they were basically trying to find they were inspired by the stuff that was being played at a disco somewhere, and they thought, well, we'll have a go at that as well, and come up with a guitar song that would sit on the dance floor, if that was the aspiration, which is kind of what they've got. Yeah, it's it's got a good beat. It's a funky beat. Yeah, I suppose the guitar's a bit funky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. When you have a rock band doing ooh, ooh as the backing vocals, you're in serious trouble. Well, it's the type of rock band, isn't it? I mean, because obviously we'll come on to uh, Crazy Nights and Kiss. You know, when Steve started mentioning disco and, and, and rock and disco crossing over, someone like Kiss do it brilliantly. Like in so I Was Made for Loving You, you know, they, 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 and in terms of the, those kinds of backing vocals, they can get away with yeah. it. It's not a place that Def Leppard should be going. <laughs> I love it when you turn into an indignant parent as well. That's, that's, <laughs> because that's exactly how I feel. I, I, I'm sitting here thinking, why? Why have you done this? Why have you done this? <laughs> Go to your room. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, T, get to your room. You should have stopped at track 10. You know, just, just stop. Stop. And this is what I was saying right at the beginning. You can go from hysteria, gods of war, animal, to this in the space of one album. Yeah. The criminality in this is that they have had three and a half years to put this right, yeah. and they didn't do it. Okay, let's uh, move on then to the final track of the album, which is Love and Affection. Yeah, it doesn't do it for me. I find it's a, it's a bit of a deflating ending. Uh, to the album, so sort of excitable, followed by this, which is, I think, to me, very formulaic. I think the reason I like Love Bites is it's just that bit, it's a bit different. Um, I hadn't heard a song like that before. This this could have been recorded by any other you know, sort of hardish rock group. Very often it is something that I'll uh, lift the needle off. Yeah, well, to be honest, if I were being honest to the way I feel about the record, the needle would have been lifted long before we got to this track. This just doesn't need to be here. If, if you're going to pin your hopes on a big track 12, this ain't it, is it? This is um, so bland. So bland. Yeah, it's, yeah it's good. that's a really good word to describe it. And it's all of this is a terrible, terrible shame because like I said at the beginning, when this album is good, it is really, really, really good. Okay, so we better talk... About highs and lows, gentlemen. Who wants to go first, uh, Steve? I mean, as bland as it is, I still <laughs> it's it's still trumped by Love Bites, which I've given the lowest score to. I mean, not much in it, but I don't like either of them. And my favourite, not by some distance, but a clear winner would be Run Riot. I've always absolutely adored it. Just a proper rock track. Mark? Execrable, I mean, excitable is the low point for me, but by Nat's bollock from the shite that is Love Bites. Um, but my favourite, it's changed. I mean, to be honest, it changes every time I hear the album, if I'm being absolutely honest, but um, Animal. Animal, because I remember how excited I was when I 
I was excited in the way that excitable doesn't make me excited. <laughs> Richard? For me, uh, it's close between excitable and love and affection for bottom spot and hysteria. Hysteria is still just a, a track that gets the hairs in the back of my neck standing up. It's brilliant. Okay, so there we are. We've got through the second of our albums. And so let's move on to an album that was released just a month or so, a uh, month or two later than uh, Hysteria. And uh, that is the choice of Mark's daughter, Holly. And it's Kisses Crazy Nights. Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so Holly chose this. Uh, it's the song that features on a lot of the playlists that turn up in the car, a bit like Stephen Sean. It's one that she sings along to, so it's one of the ones that she knows better than others. She almost, and had we not already reviewed it, might might have plumped for um, Judas Priest's British Steel, just on the basis of United, uh, the track United. But uh, Crazy Nights it was that she plumped for, released on September the 18th, 1987, recorded between March and June of that year, released on Mercury Records in the United States, Vertigo in Europe. It's slightly longer than 1984 at 42 minutes and 58 seconds, a full 20 or 19 minutes shorter, mercifully, uh, than (laughs) Hysteria, and produced by Steady as a Rock, Ron Neverson, who had breathed new life into heart um, two years previously. And Jesus Christ, if their band needed breathing life into at this point, it was Kiss. Um, interestingly, this is an album that both Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley uh, say is their least favourite of all of the studio albums that they've done, which is fine. Um, happens to be my favourite, um, which I don't know whether that says more about me or them. What I can say is that it's a bloody good job that they recorded it, whether they like it or not, because I'm pretty sure that without it, they wouldn't be around about to do their 50th anniversary tour. Um, So, you know, it saved them commercially without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, Recorded across three different studios in uh, Los Angeles. Um, And the personnel for the album, Paul Stanley, on lead and backing vocals and rhythm guitar. Gene Simmons on bass, lead and backing vocals. Eric Carr, the late Eric Carr, on drums, percussion and backing vocals. And Bruce Kulick on lead guitar and backing vocals. The album got to number four in the United United Kingdom, number 18 in the United States of America. It sold a tenth of the number of um, that 1984 sold. Uh, 1984 went 20 times platinum in, in the United States with 10 million, 10 million sales. In the United States alone for Van Halen, 1.25 million, um, broadly speaking, globally for Kiss. Um, so yeah, that's where it is. I, I absolutely adore this, partly as a guilty pleasure because there's a lot on it that I really shouldn't like in this day and age. It was all right in 1987, it's less all right now. And partly I like it because I think this is, A, they've worked with different songwriters, um, Desmond Child, among them, who obviously had previous with Bon Jovi and Slippery Rowan Wet. I mean, a serial hit writer. Um, and as I say, Kiss needed a commercial hit at this point in their career, because otherwise I think it would have been curtains for them. But also, I think they have managed with this, and it's not a perfect album, there are a couple of absolute stinkers on here, but broadly speaking, I think they have written 
uh, an album that you know is unapologetically commercial, unapologetically chasing the MTV audience, which they won. And, you know, with Crazy, Crazy Nights, uh, not quite the title track of the album, they got the kind of exposure and new lease of life that they desperately needed. So, yeah, this this is, as I say, my probably my favourite Kiss album. I think it's the one that is probably the most complete in terms of you know steve always talks about kiss being live band which is true they absolutely are but i think this is an album that kind of elevates them slightly above just putting out cannon fodder for their live show i think this is a a complete album in its own right but what do you boys think i can't i just can't believe we're talking about the same album i've got deja vu all over again do you remember a while back when we reviewed Def leopard's hysteria and we thought <laughs> Jesus, I've got that all over again with this. I've got so many highs and so many lows and more lows and highs, far more lows. I love the fact that the execs at Polygram, this is a story I've read, don't know whether it's true or not, apparently they stood and gave a five-minute round of applause when this was played in full at a conference they had, which proves to me that record company execs know absolutely everything about money and how to make it and fuck all about music because that's what this is. This is a money... I mean, you've made the point. I mean, and you're not shying away from the fact that this is purely a money-making quest, a stage of their career where they were on their asses. I think there are so many weak songs on this. There's two or three crackers. There's an awful lot of really weak songs on here. Gene Simmons doesn't sound like Gene Simmons anymore. The God of Thunder's just vanished. A a glorious guitarist doth not save a band, but they've got one in in Bruce Kulit who's just off the scale and transforms many of these very modest tracks with his wonderful fretwork. But by and large, I just think it's a pretty grotty record, if I'm honest. I think there's two or three absolute standout tracks on it, and I could listen to the opening track, obviously, all night long and have done. But, yeah, mixed bag, real mixed bag. Okay. um, So brilliant brilliant that um, Steve feels exactly the same way about it as I do. Richard, what about you? (laughs) I've I've really enjoyed listening to this. I think it's got some a few really good tracks on it. Yeah, there's a few that aren't so great. But as an album, it's it's been a real enjoyable listen over this last week for me. Um and, and yeah, a few tracks have really grown on me. I wasn't familiar with the, the album before uh, it was chosen by Holly. Yeah, in terms of the background, the the stuff that I've read was and I wonder why, if, if it's a reason why both of them look back on this album not so fondly. Because it sounds like for this album um, was the point where the two of them weren't that close. Gene Simmons had other projects that he was progressing and wanted to do those. So I think to Steve's point, the reason he doesn't sound like Gene Simmons is just he wasn't here. He wasn't there in, you know, in soul when he was, when he was recording some of this stuff. And, and for that, this album loses a bit. Paul Stanley obviously wanted to soldier on with it. And I think some of it, you know, not, not only the title track, he should be uh, pretty proud uh, about it. And in terms of the money-making machine bit, Kiss themselves and the two of them, Stanley and Simmons, have always unashamedly been a money-making machine. Yeah, we had a discussion a, couple, a few episodes back and we were, just, uh, we were talking about revenge around them getting the PR men in. Sometimes they've missed the target, but all the time they've, been, they've tried to think what should be 
the album we need to make for this age of what's going on. Um, and I can hear that um, all, all over this album. Um, you can hear references to a lot of the bands that were around of that, uh, at that time, <laughs> including Heart. Um, so I think they knew exactly what they were doing. So it's been an enjoyable listen, but some hits and misses. And it starts off with a woo from Paul Stanley as we go into possibly one of the best-known commercial rock songs that's ever been recorded and released, and the song that resurrected Kiss's career at this point, Crazy, Crazy Nights. It's still in their set to this day, and the crowd goes wild for it. So, yes, on this basis, it is canon folly for the audience, but... I'm slightly bored by this song. My life would not be poor if I didn't hear it again in a, on a recorded basis. I love watching it live because it's a spectacle. But, yeah, I'm slightly bored by the recorded version. This track takes me back like Jump to the best of times, but generally the best of times with this track are watching them do it live, which is probably a fair comment. It is an absolute highlight of a, of a, of a Kiss show. That's just a great song. The, the interesting element of this is it was co-written by um, Adam Mitchell, wasn't it? Who was um, he? Didn't seem like the obvious fit given his background, which sort of seems to be sort of country and folk and shit. He knew um, he knew a hit clearly. Yeah, and Scottish to boot. Well, Scottish Canadian, okay. wasn't he? But you know, I think going back to Richard's point, you know, Simmons is you know in loco parentis at this point, physically, emotionally. You know, he and Stanley have drifted apart a bit to the point where they kind of settled their differences in a car park, not with their fists, but with, with a discussion about responsibility and commitment. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's an album that is the the product of a lot of writers. Steve, you, you clearly think that Kiss stuff are here for that. I think it makes them better, personally. No, I don't, I don't mind the addition of, of other writers, and I just don't think that everything that was written was that good, that's all. There are some good songs on here, but this is this is probably the best of them, and it, it goes downhill at a fair old rate quite quickly. Richard? This is one of those songs that I've had to reset for because I've just heard, heard it so many times. And it, it's, it's good fun. I don't think this is the best song on the album. Uh, I think it's great pop, rock, brilliant uh, radio fodder, good to sing along to uh, at a live gig. It's Pretty classic Kiss, but not the best track on the album. So Crazy Nights morphs into a typical Kiss galloper. I'll fight hell to hold you. Typically melodramatic and heroic lyrics from Paul Stanley, who's always the nice in shining armour, galloping over the hill, presumably to bang, bang you. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this kind of raises the pulse rate a bit in terms of the speed of the song, and you know we're off on a we're, say, we're off on a gallop. And you're right, Steve. Bruce Kulick is a phenomenal guitarist, and he rescues. I, I completely get where you're coming from because without his guitars in this, I think this would be a very, very different album. Yeah, I agree. Echo that entirely. And this, I mean, less so in Crazy Crazy Nights, but this track certainly showcases Kulick. It's absolutely best. I mean, he virtually opens the song, finishes the song, brilliant solo in between. He's a wonderful, wonderful guitarist, and I like I like I like this track an awful lot. I think it's a brilliant follow-up to what went first, straight you know from Party Central into a right good slab of intense hard rock. It works really well. You know, Paul Stanley's straining a little bit, isn't he? Richard, I really like this. 
I, th- I think the, as well as the guitars, the whole, the whole song works uh, really, really like this. When, when Paul Stanley sings the, sings the first line on this, it sounded like Dave Menachetti. There are, there are bits of this in terms of its structure and the, the melody that, that is so, uh, very, very similar to Y&T. For me, this is slightly reminiscent of where they were with Vinnie Vincent on Lick It Up. In terms of the guitar work particularly, uh, I don't think Bruce Kulick will thank me for comparing to Vinnie Vincent. I think Kulick is a much better guitarist. But yes, it's kind of a, it's kind of a throwback to, to Lick It Up. So yeah, I, I really like this song as well. So track three, it's a nine tracker, is Bang Bang You. Or as I like to call it, No, 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 except that title's already taken. Because this is wrong. This is wrong on so many levels. This is wrong on every single level to do with women, exploitation, objectification, anything. And I love it because it's my guilty pleasure. I really, really shouldn't like this. I mean, the great thing about this is, you know, forget Love Gun. Paul Stanley's put away the love gun. He's not got a sniper's rifle. He's not got a shotgun. This man's got a piece of fucking artillery. He's he's knocking on the door with a cannonball. Yeah, it's it's simply, well, Steve's going to contradict me, but it's simply impossible not to like and be secretly quite indulged by this song. Well, I, I congratulate you for figuring out what it was about because I found it quite cryptic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! Yeah, no, I don't. I don't like this at all. I mean, not even Kulik can save this. This is this is a bit more traditional. Um, Kiss. I, I see this sitting sweatily <laughs> on a few of their previous releases. It's throwaway, and I'm throwing it away as we speak. Richard, <laughs> of course, it's throwaway. This is you know. Well, it's, I was going to say it's Love Gun Two. It's not Love Gun Two. It's probably been Love Gun Thirty Four. It is. It. It's just. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've scored it massively highly. It's not that, but it is. It, it's disposable, innuendo, cheeky, stupid, kiss fuck. Love it. You're so right. Oh. <laughs> Before I get the answers, well, hang on a minute. All, all your comments about down and dirty and Y and T. No, no. Look, Dave, Dave Minichetti shouldn't go there. Blackie Lawless batters you round the head with innuendo. Kiss, just do it right. <laughs> <laughs> so here we come on to the song that is actually called No, No, No. Uh, the first of two, I think, written by Gene Simmons. Uh, we get a bit of an unassuming guitar solo intro and then the Simmons vocal. Um, again, very lick it up. It's not quite the same ear candy as we've had for the last three tracks but you know clever arrangements um but a, a misstep for me i have to say richard yeah it's almost a, a bit, bit van halen-y isn't it the way the guitar starts <laughs> what, Steve? what this isn't just a hat doffed to fucking eddie van halen this is a whole milliner's shop <laughs> jesus yeah it's it's all right it's all right but it's back to this is this is a Simmons track. His are generally heavier and, and a lot more percussive. But yeah, as you said, the thing that's missing is any kind of uh, real menace and power in the vocals. And I think actually, with this this song had potential, despite being might have been maybe being a Van Halen riff off, but it had it had, it had some potential, um, and it did, doesn't quite deliver. 
Okay, so um, the next track is uh, Hell or High Water. And this is my high on the album, actually. I really, really, really like this. Written by Simmons and Kulik. Yeah, so the um, the fact that Simmons has written it, it's it's kind of, it is a bit kind of lighter on the ear, which is unusual for him. But, I mean, for me, Steve will disagree vociferously about this, but harmony's on point, check. Hook line to die for, check. Riff running right, check. Wailing solo, check. Slam dunk kiss. Thank you very much. Highest order, highest score. If I want to listen to Joey Tempest sing, I'll buy a Europe album. That's all I'll say. He's, he's just not at the party. <sighs> no, this is just pretty average. Richard? I don't think it's Europe. It is quite subdued, the vocals in this. Yeah, I think it's okay. I think it's okay. It's pleasant to listen to. I like do like the chorus and the harmonies in the chorus. I've not got a lot else to say beyond that. Side one closes out with uh, My Way, not to be confused with the Frank Sinatra song. I don't think you'd ever confuse it with that. Co-written by a guy called Bruce Turgon, uh, along with Desmond Child. Now, Turgon was not unknown to Kiss. He had been a member of a band called Black Sheep, who had got, they'd managed to snag the um, support slot for Kiss's debut tour in support of their first album. Um, until in a fairly spinal tappish moment, um, blind, uh, blind, black sheep's uh, kit got terminally damaged in a road traffic accident, which lost them lost on the tour. So that kind of stopped before it had even begun. But um, they obviously remembered him. He came back and helped to write this. It's all right. It's it, it's vanilla, but with less shit in the middle. <laughs> it, th- th- this is. As Steve says, Kiss following other trends, and the, the, we've, we've had their Van Halen song. This is their Survivor song. This is that nod to uh, sort of mid mid eighties sort of you know, AOR uh, type uh, rock. I like it. Um, it's pleasant again, pleasant to listen to, but not much to say beyond that. It's it's vanilla, Steve. It, it's obviously not a flavour you like. My way, I mean, I saw an interview with um, Turgan many, many years later, and he said he still loved it. He said it's very infectious. And I said, so is chlamydia. But... <laughs> Paul Stanley, he strains even by his standards. He said, if I sang any higher, dogs would run onto the street. <laughs> it's absolutely true. He's he spent he spent so long at the top of his range he's got a nosebleed. <laughs> so we flip the record over and side two track one. Well, it's a poor opener for a side two. I think Wall Come Down, a really lazy chanty song that really gets irritating well before the three minute twenty five mark where it mercifully stops. Liar, liar, got your pants on fire. I know you want it, you know you want it too. Hey, diddle, diddle, when the cat wants to fiddle, the kitten's got to give him the... <laughs> oh, don't. I mean, I like a laugh, but... Jeez. <laughs> so the boys bring it back for track two, side two. The one thing that Kiss do really, really well are ballads. It doesn't matter when it is in their career they can absolutely smash a ballad. And Reason to Live is probably, along with Beth, the best-known one. I mean, I was in America when this came out, and you couldn't move on MTV 
for this. There was nothing bigger on MTV in September 1987 than Kiss and Reason to Live. And I include Def Leppard Hysteria in that as well. This was massive. Ever so white snake, isn't it? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's better than white snake. I think it's better than what Coverdale was churning out at this point in terms of this ballad stuff. But, I mean, you're right. They did so many ballads and two or three of them are, are, are memorable. Two or three aren't. Um, and this is, this is yeah, this is one of the better ones. I like this. Is it? I'm afraid this leaves me cold. The first word I've written under my notes here is, is heart. This is a, a heart record. And I think other bands do this kind of song better. And it's very formulaic and, for me, one of the lower scorers on, on the album. But Ron Neverston's appearance in the studio for this album is not a coincidence. No. Yeah, they've, they have listened to Heart, they've listened to Survivor, and they've gone, that's what we need now. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, this is absolutely deliberate. I'm assessing it as a song. Uh, in terms of what they did with this, absolutely the right decision, I'm sure. Okay, so um, Van Halen's Girl was not the only one that went bad tonight because the third from last track on this album is Good Girl Gone Bad, another co-written song, um, only Simmons credited from the band on this one. So it was co-written by external songwriters, trademark Kiss riff running through it, lovely Kulik flourishes through it, and a brilliant solo. It's got a good lick, it's got a good chorus, it's typical Kiss, isn't it, really? I think it's another track that's that's fine. Um, I enjoyed listening to it, but um, didn't really grab me. Good, yeah, good chuggy riff, nice chorus, but but not a lot to say beyond that. Well, they recorded this song back in 1985 on a different album, Asylum, and called it Tears Are Falling. Ah, yeah. And it's it's exactly the same, really, and, and I love Tears Are Falling. This isn't as good. But I still really like this. Yeah, no, I do. Yeah. Just in case it's the last time we mention him this evening, it's got an absolute cock gorger of a guitar solo from Kulik at the end. And not the first time he's um he's added half a mark or more to a track. Well, if you wanted to up the MTV ante. Anyone got any cannon there? <laughs> so Plu de Fromage. I mean, this this was kind of almost, if there was a formula for an MTV hit, this is the one. It's no coincidence that this was the third single off the album. It's fairly derivative of what was going on at the time around the genre. So, you know, it's a, you know uh, particularly around uh, American rock radio, radio stations in America, we're going to play this all day long. And whether this is a Kiss track or not, doesn't matter because this was written for one reason and one reason only, and it is incredibly successful. And how many times have you said that throughout reviewing this album? The whole album's derivative. And I love this because it is what it is. It's just hooky, it's catchy, it puts a smile on your face. There's no point in trying to analyze deeply what is just just a straightforward down the line bit of radio nonsense that you know will make him a fortune. Sure it did. I like it. Do you like it as much, Richard? Yeah, I like it. It's uh, uh, amongst the best of bands that they're, uh, they've been covering on this album. This is the Bob Kirby tune. Thief in the Night ends the album. I don't really have a lot to say about this. I, mean, I think this treads the slightly murky water that the band were sludging their way through on Animalized. So more typically, I suppose, Simmons is all right, but it's, it's not a patch on what's gone before. 
Yeah, I don't think it's a bad finish. Um, I can't. I, I was trying to work it out, but there there are echoes in the in the rhythm of uh, some early early Kiss songs. I felt, or maybe even a bit you know, a bit God of Thundery. There's, there's a da 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 sort of sort of machine gun uh, bass uh, uh, to it. Uh, so I, I I don't think it's a bad finish. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy it. Steve Simmons wrote this for Wendy O. Williams, didn't he? I didn't know that. But then one of his many presumably side projects that were pissing the hell out of Paul Stanley at the time. So, and then they stuck it on this album as well. I don't quite know how it got to be on both. Yeah, I quite like this. It's, it's okay. But I've, I've really run out of sort of steam with this album, if I'm honest. Well, I think the band have as well, because I think the chorus is quite lazy and laboured. Um, the rest of it's all right. It's, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. It's... Mm, it's never going to blow your socks off, is it? I mean, there's not a lot of the album that's going to blow your socks off anyway, Steve, so I wouldn't worry about you. But, um, yeah, I think this goes out with a whimper rather than a roar. Okay, so let's do some highs and lows. Steve, let's get the bad news over with first. Let's start with you. Um, yeah, well, I've, I've not much to choose between my way and when your walls come down, and I don't really know to, need to tell you whether that was a high or a low, do I? Crazy, crazy nights. It will always be a favourite. It will just always be a favourite. Richard? I really couldn't get on with Reason to Live, as I've said. So probably that that is bottom of my pile. At the top is Fight Hell to Hold You. I thought it was a brilliant track. Really enjoyed it. So there you go. That brings to a close the third and final album on this Bring Your Daughters to the Slaughter episode. My high was uh, Hell or High Water. And my low was, what did I have? My low was with Thief in the Night, I think. Um, I just, yeah. So there we go. Um, the one thing that this episode of the podcast has proven yet again is how different our tastes are. Even when we quite like albums, we like different stuff, which kind of legitimizes the scoring process as well. So, uh, which brings us nicely onto that job because that's the next thing we need to do is take these bastards away and give them a score. So let's do that. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right, so we've now completed the scoring process and these three albums, again, Bring Your Daughters to the Slaughter, um, the three albums chosen by Alice, by Holly and by Sean. We'll go with Sean's choice first, which was Van Halen's 1984, Steve. Yeah, okay, yeah, well, I thought this would do well. Rich, you gave it 8.31. Mark, you gave it 8.48. I gave it 8.62 for an overall score of 8.475. And then second on the list was Alice's Choice, My Daughter's Choice, and she chose Hysteria by Def Leppard, and the scores were as follows. All fairly close, actually. Mark was uh, lowest with a 7.32. Just above Mark with a 7.46 was Steve. And I was a little bit higher with a 7.54, and that gave Hysteria an overall total of 7.44-ish. And then finally, we go to Holly's Choice, Mark's daughter. She chose Crazy Nights by Kiss. How did that fare, Mark? So Steve um, scored it actually higher than I thought um, it was going to be scored. He scored it at 6.95. Richard, you gave it a 7.4. Two, and I gave it a 7.8, so not wildly 
uh, high, even though I really like the album, for an overall score for Crazy Nights of 7.32121. Okay, so there are the scores, and we'd better find out where these three are placed in our Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So we've arrived at the Hall of Fame, which has now got 78 albums in it. And from episode 26, as you know, we had um, Van Halen's 1984, Def Leppard's Hysteria and Kiss's Crazy Nights. And in reverse order, we'll put Crazy Nights by Kiss comes in at 55. Def Leppard's Hysteria comes in at 48. These might sound low down, but they're all, as we've heard before, these are scores in the uh, in the mid seven, mid to low sevens. So yeah, these are albums we like. But when it comes to albums we like... 1984 by Van Halen has burst into the top 10. And I think that's the first time for about five or six weeks that we've had a new arrival in the top 10. Van Halen's 1984 is in third place, tantalizingly close to displacing Machine Head and not too far away from Led Zeppelin 4, which still sits atop the pile with 8.55. As I say, Van Halen's 1984, 8.475. So it's in the elite company that have, uh, that have gone through the eight barrier. Rich, what are your thoughts? I'm not surprised that Van Halen got into top three. It's an album we all know that all three of us love, but it's just a fantastic album. It's my favourite. I still think it's their best. It's a, it'd be interesting to see if the scores do bear that out with the, the other albums that they've made. The other thing is that Van Halen has managed to get ever so slightly above the Black Album by Metallica, which is uh, amazing. Because we, we, we wouldn't have predicted that, I don't think. No, but, we, but we'll go back and we do sound like broken records about consistency. And there isn't a duff track on 19, 1984. I think we were all agreed, weren't we, on, on the track that was not as strong as the others, but that still wasn't a bad track. Whereas we know that the Black Album, unfortunately, has a couple of hours. So... Uh... Crazy Nights, Mark. Below Kiss, Above Revenge, is that pretty much where you anticipated you'd see it? Or Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think so. I, mean, I, I think probably I might have expected it to get a bit closer to sort of the 1974 debut. I mean, it's a full 24 places below that. But yeah, I mean, you know, much as I love Crazy Nights, it's not a classic album. You know, nobody's... We, nobody's ever going to put that in a time capsule for the aliens to find, are they? While you two were talking at the beginning of this section of the podcast, I was doing a little bit of a calculation. If Def Leppard had stopped, if Syria had stopped at eight tracks and the best, as we've defined it, the best eight tracks on the album, it would have gone in at number 15. That's kind of interesting, except that if you'd have applied that same logic to many of the other albums that have had brilliant eight tracks on, it probably still wouldn't have been number 15 if you follow my drift. No, I, I, I take the point, what, I suppose what I'm saying is that, you know, four tracks are responsible for 33 places. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and my hunch is that Pyromania will get into the top 15 by right with all 10 on. Yeah, yeah, as I'd like to think High and Dry will, but nothing's, nothing's certain on this. So there you go. That um, that is the end of episode twenty six. We just now need to uh, go and work out what we're doing next week. That's it for us this week. Thank you for your company. Hope you've enjoyed it. 
as much as we have. And we certainly have enjoyed it, even the arguments. And we'll be back next time with another three stonking albums to argue about. Um, stay well, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.